old Joe Buck from Texas. Enrico Rizzo from the Bronx. And I'm going to buy you a drink. What the hell do you think of that? Well, I don't mind if I do. Why do you think I come all the way up here from Texas for? Well, I'm a hustler. You didn't know that? You were going to ask me for money? Huh? Well, you get out of here! <laughs> you got to get yourself some kind of management. Only the echo. Hey, I'm walking here! I'm walking here! worry about that. Actually, that ain't a bad way to pick up insurance, you know. In New York, no rich lady with any class at all buys that cowboy crap anymore. Women like me, goddammit. Tell the only one thing I've ever been good for is loving. But for that service, I charge 20 bucks. I happen to be his manager. Okay. I'll buy his coffee, huh, baby? <coughs> I don't think I can walk anymore. You know what they do to you when when they know you can't. When they find out that you can't walk. Walk. I'll just tell them. I don't go nowhere without my buddy here. You know what you gotta do, cowboy? I'm scared. Where are you going? I gotta get a doctor. No doctors, no cops. You're sick, boy. You need a damn doctor. Hey, just put me on a bus. I don't need you. Welcome back to the Essential Films Podcast, a podcast devoted to the discussion of the greatest movies ever made or the essential films. I'm Adolfo Acosta, and I am joined by my co-host, who's walking here, Mr. Mark Espinoza. How you doing today, Mark? Uh, not too bad, uh, Adolfo. How you doing? Doing good. Um, so we're finally getting around to Midnight Cowboy. It's been a, it's been a few months. We've had a lot of uh, scheduling conflicts uh, because of the last couple months, but we're finally getting to it now. Um, and, uh, but before we get to that, how have you been? What have you been up to these last, uh, few months? Yeah. Well, um, so pretty much August, I was completely off the grid work, obviously. So, uh, so it's been, uh, so the doubt that was kind of annoying, but now September, everything's starting to calm down a little bit. It's still a little crazy because obviously nothing can go back to normal when you're in the middle of a pandemic, no matter what industry you work in. So it's still a little crazier than it probably should be right now in September, but uh, we're in October now. So it's still, uh, still a little crazy, but not to the point where I'm working like 80, 90 hours a week anymore. So uh, I've been having a chance to now finally revisit some, uh, some old movies, watch some of the movies that I've actually bought over the summer. I've just been sitting on my, uh, on my nightstand, just right waiting to be opened from their wrapper. So I got to return to my Labor Day tradition, which is where I go to Alamo draft and spend an entire day. Uh, that was pretty much my big return to regular visits to the theater was that Sunday, that Labor Day Sunday, because, you know, I'd already gone to Alamo draft house once I made my big return in July uh, for Pulp Fiction, but I hadn't gone since. And uh, after that, I've been kind of going to the movies regularly. In fact, today, as of this recording, I returned to an AMC theater for the first time since uh, 2020 uh, when I went to see Tenet. Uh, one of the five people that went to see Tenet at the theater, apparently. And uh, 
you know, that was a, you know, it's little by little things are starting to get back to normal, which is good. I mean, yeah, it's COVID's not over. It's nowhere near over, but you know, the little things that you can do when you're vaccinated, you can kind of get started getting into that rhythm again. And that's what I'm trying to do. I just reinstated my Stubbs A-list this week. So uh, look for me to go to the movies more often now. Not so much back to where I was pre-COVID, but, you know, eventually we'll get there. Baby steps. Right. Um, so what what did, uh, what did you see on the Labor Day weekend there? Let's see. So uh, Labor Day weekend. So the first one was a brunch screening of Moonstruck. And that was the only retro screening of the uh, of the day. Now, what's funny about that is be- is that. That was actually the first film in what's called, well, what's being called the Fun City Cinema series that Alamo Dratos was doing for the whole month of September. So for those who don't know, Jason Bailey hosts a podcast called Fun City Cinema about New York film. And he's recently coming out with a book called Fun City Cinema. It's actually coming out October 26th. So uh, you can check it out at your local bookstore then. Check it out on Amazon. Uh, actually, it's copy. City Cinema that I was able to get today at tonight's screening of After Hours, which I'll get to in a little bit. Um, so, you know, Jason Bailey, in conjunction with Alamo Drafthouse, was doing a whole series called Fun City Cinema, where they just pick a New York movie and they screen it for the whole month of September. You know, I mean, obviously, September is a pretty huge month for the city of New York for obvious reasons I'm not going to get into now. So... This is probably the best way to kind of honor the city from a cinematic standpoint was to kind of showcase some of the great films that took place that that were filmed in New York City. So the first one was Moonstruck. So that's what I saw first that day. Then uh, I saw Candyman, which you know what? The, the new Candyman was actually pretty great. So if anybody hasn't seen that, definitely check that out. It's a it's a great uh, it's a great film. Very good compliment to the original Candyman. So if you're into horror, if you like the original Candyman, this is a very worthy uh, very worthy sequel to it. I don't know what are your thoughts on that, Adolfo. I haven't gotten around to see Candyman yet. So it is a sequel, not a reboot. Correct. Okay. So the original Candyman happened. Cool. Yes. So then after that, I actually managed to see Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds, which, I mean, it was fun for all, like, the cultural references, the pop culture stuff. Uh, And then Ryan Reynolds is pretty awesome in anything that he does, so I had a good time with it. And then finally I saw uh, Shang-Chi to end the day, which great, great entry. It's it's a bit long in the tooth, but it's a great origin story for Shang-Chi in the MCU. Uh, He's going to be one of their big guys. Coming up with, with all the attention they gave him with this movie and this really and the great story behind it, like he's going to be one of the big players of these new Avengers or whatever they're going to do uh, for Phase Four onward. Yeah, I, I I did manage to get to see that one. I I thought that was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a little different. I mean, it it did stray from the normal because you know a lot of people say that the Marvel stories are, can be sometimes formulaic with like their origin stories. And this origin story was different, like than what they usually do, which was nice. I mean, they still had the big epic battle at the end, which, which was very CGI heavy, like like all Marvel movies. But other than that, I think most of it was pretty. It, it did stray from the formula, which was nice. Uh, and you know, uh, uh, Simu uh, Liu, as I think it's how you say it, right. uh, was really good in the film. Um, and yeah, this is probably star making role for him. Uh, and you know, good to see people other than you know. 
pretty white people on 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 uh, on the big screen <laughs> for a change, you know? Yeah. Um yeah, that's a lot of fun. Um I did not get to see Candyman like you mentioned. Um my my uh theater going experience has been pretty limited. I did <laughs> I did go see the Paw Patrol movie with my with my daughter. So <laughs> nice. Me, so um if you've ever seen Paw Patrol that that's you you know what you're going to get with that. Um but I did catch um uh Malignant which was a Ooh, that's a good happy. one. That is a crazy movie. An absolutely bananas that's movie. That's a good one. Um but yeah, uh that that those are kind of my recent my recent watches, but um but yeah, I'm starting slowly slowly getting back into the theater. Slowly getting back in there. So let's bring this whole thing full circle to tonight. So like I was saying, I have been attending the Fun City Cinema Series for the whole month of September at Alamo. Uh, they even went into October, which because they did one tonight as of this recording. So I'll get into that in a little bit. But uh, so I saw Moonstruck on that Sunday at Labor Day weekend. Then they had um, Uncut Gems the following week. So I got to see that again at at the Alamo. If you remember the story I told here on the show, the first time I saw Uncut Gems was actually uh, in, uh, I think, January of 2020. And uh, the Safdie brothers were there with Ari Aster, and they were just pretty much hanging out after the movie for about a good half hour just uh, shooting the shit. Um, but I got to see it again at Alamo as part of the series. Then the third one – well, actually, I'll skip the third one for now. The fourth one was Taxi Driver, which I had already seen as part of the Tribeca Film Festival a few few years back when they were doing the anniversary screening with the reunion. Uh, and then – Tonight they did uh, After Hours, which I've never seen After Hours. This is my first viewing of that, and I don't know if you've seen it at all, but that that's a pretty crazy movie. I actually have not seen it. It's it's a it's a Scorsese blind spot for me. Um, it, it's it's been on my list forever to watch, but I just have not gotten to it. That that's a pretty crazy movie. So uh, a, a lot of a great ensemble cast. You're gonna you're gonna pop at some of the uh, some of the actors that are in there, plus a couple of the ones that share screen time because. You know, they share screen time in more iconic movies later down the road. So seeing them was kind of a marked out moment together. But I'll, I'll get into that some other time. But the only one I missed, which technically it wasn't advertised as part of the series, but the guy that was hosting all these hosted this one, uh, Jason Bailey, was Coming to America. And I had already seen Coming to America at Alamo anyway when I took Mr. Reddy for the movie party. But um, that's the only one that I missed. But... Part three of this series was Midnight Cowboy. And I did tell you, actually, I actually asked if maybe we could delay this recording until after the screening. So I knew this was going to be something special. And it was because Adam Hollander, cinematographer of Midnight Cowboy, was actually there after the screening to give a talk with Jason Bailey about the film and the filming experience, which I believe, I'm not mistaken, I sent you the video. I don't know if you were able to watch it. I was um, able to watch it. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, it was about a 20-minute conversation with Adam Hollander, a really nice guy. Um, and then he pretty much just gave his experience, you know, shooting a Midnight Cowboy, working with uh, uh, Selinger, and, uh, you know, kind of just that whole experience, uh, which we're going to get into a little bit because, like I said, um, tonight, after the after-hour screening, Jason Bailey actually was selling some advanced copies of Fun City Cinema, his book. And uh, I was able to buy one today at a discounted price, and he actually autographed it for me, which was really cool of him. So uh, there's some good uh, Midnight Cowboy uh, trivia and notes in this book that we can get into as we talk about the production of the film. And um, so, yeah, so we can get into it. All right. 
So yeah, let's uh, let's go ahead and, and uh, kind of get started here. Um, we'll, we'll go into Midnight Cowboy. Uh, its stats are: uh, it was directed by John Schlesinger, with the screenplay by Waldo Salt, based on the Midnight Cowboy book by James Leo uh, Hurley, starring Dustin Hoffman and John Voight, um, and also Sylvia Miles, John McGiver, uh, Brenda Vaccaro, Barnard Hughes, Ruth White, and Jennifer Salt, uh, with cinematography by Adam Hollander. It was released May 25th, 1969, with a budget of $3.2 million. Um, so as we kind of always start with these discussions, when did, when was the first time you watched or you discovered Midnight Cowboy, and what's your kind of history with the film? So Midnight Cowboy was a film I had really wanted to see for a long time because, I mean, it, its uh, reputation precedes it, obviously. But I really I didn't really get a chance to watch it until I bought the Criterion Blu-ray when it finally came out. And uh, I finally got to sit down and watch it. And I was pretty blown away by it in a way. Like, I wasn't really able to grasp some of the subtleties of it, which we're going to get into as we talk about the film more in depth. But um, I pretty much just watched it straight and didn't really give it too much thought. I just thought, wow, like, John Voight is awesome here. Dustin Hoffman is amazing. And, you know, this this was one of those um, – this is one of those classic New York stories you know, of, uh, you know, the kind of the big city kind of chewing somebody up and spitting them out, you know, and then you just the themes of loneliness, which really hit hard for me the second time I watched it, which was actually this Alamo screening I did for Fun City Cinema. And it wasn't until like listening to like Hollander talk about some of the some of the production and what he was going for as far as, um, you know, the way he was shooting things and kind of the techniques he was trying to use to kind of give a, you know, a visual representation of the story that, you know, I, it kind of hit me like some of the stuff he was going for, some of the stuff that the movie itself and Schlesinger was going for. And I mean, to me, like this second viewing was probably my my favorite, not because I was just at Alamo, because like now that I, I knew the story and I knew like how the movie was going to go, I could just pay attention to all of the intricacies, like the cinematography, how things were shot, some of the subtleties between like John Voight and Dustin Hoffman that weren't really apparent the first time I watched it. So I was able to appreciate that a little more. Uh, and I mean, I mean, we'll go more in depth later on, but it's just, I was blown away by it the first time. And, and then this, I think the second time was more my favorite time watching because I really got to enjoy, I think more of what they were trying to go for. Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting, because uh, the first time I watched it, um, it was part of my kind of my my quest to see all the Best Picture winners, and this was way back, you know, like 2004-ish, uh, whenever I was first started, when I first signed up for Netflix, and I was kind of getting all the different Best Picture winners in, and I kind of, it was, there was a certain point where I was just kind of trying to watch them and like trying to just tick them off without really appreciating them. Do you know what I mean? Like I accomplished this and I can move on. So I, I just kind of watched it and was like, okay, whatever. And then moved on. And then I never really kind of gave it much thought until a few years later, I, I managed to watch it again. And then I appreciated it. I actually watched it, watched it. You know what I mean? I didn't just sit there and like kind of zone out while I watched it. Like I, I actually paid attention and, and watched it and, and, and absorbed everything. And then, and then it kind of hit me a lot harder. Um, and then this most recent time when we're uh, when I was prepping for the show, watching the Criterion edition, like you, um, it, that's when I was like, 
that's when I finally, I think, got it, got it right? That's when I finally right. really understood and comprehended the film and, and uh, on like a deeper level. But um, but yeah, so it's 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 a it's a movie I think you got to watch a few times before you can really um, before it can really sink in. Um, so, oh, go ahead. Oh, definitely. Because like I said, like the first time I just pretty much watched it to watch. It. I mean, I still really enjoyed the film. I loved the film, but I was more like the acting was what was spoke to me the most. That first viewing, the second time it was everything. It wasn't just the acting. It was the setting. It was the cinematography. It was the story itself. Like all that kind of just came together. Cause I was able to really watch it this time. You know, not worry about like, oh, the plot twist or what's going to happen in the story. Because I already knew the story and I could just focus on the filmmaking. And I was I think I was even more blown away by it the second time than I was the first time. Because when you see everything together and you really pay attention to the techniques and the subtleties and all of that stuff. Man, this is this is a masterpiece here. Yeah, it absolutely. It absolutely is. Um and and we can get into this later, but uh, this is an interesting kind of film that is has kind of been adopted or um, I don't know if adopted the right word, but uh, included in like the um, the LGBT film canon. Um, and we'll kind of get into some of those themes a little later, but uh, it's a controversial one because of some of the things that happened in the film, like, you know, but at the same time, it was. Uh, a lot of LG- LGBT folks, you know, uh, highly praise it because mm-hmm. it was one of the first films to frankly and, you know, openly show, uh, you know, homosexual activity on screen in a, a major mo- motion picture film. Uh, but uh, some other people kind of deride it for maybe portraying it in a negative light. But either way, uh, it, it is kind of considered part of that the gay canon, so to speak. But um, yeah, it's an interesting it's a really interesting film. Um rated x at the time of its release now you know we hear that now it, it it's it's kind of a kind of conjure, conjures up uh you know an nc-17 kind of rating you know like where it's or not even more like a sexuality like a, a pornography kind of film and uh it's it really it was like too much for an r and then they it, so it, back then an x rating was kind of more like nc-17 is now uh as opposed to like straight up pornography you know um which is what the x-rated films were back then right right and you know you kind of touched on the uh homosexuality aspect of it and i do want to go into a little bit of uh, jason bailey's fun city cinema here because there is uh interesting excerpt here so from what you remember, Adolfo, from the conversation with Adam Hollander, he did mention how, you know, after uh, it came out, he per- they didn't go into detail much, but there was it was obvious that he had problems working with the crew because, you know, maybe because they were pretty much prejudiced against him, you know, for being gay. So, you know, one of the things that um that uh that uh, Hollander, I mean, Hollander, really, like I said, he didn't really get into it. But one of the things that uh, Jason Bailey mentions here in the uh, in the uh, in the book is uh, the producer. Now, oh, shoot. Now, uh, Jerome Hellman. So the, the producer, Jerome Hellman, there's actually a quote from here uh, regarding the uh, regarding the crew. And he goes, quote, I don't know whether he thought they would beat him up, Hellman said, but he certainly thought they'd say you. Faggot, you're not telling me what to do. Go f- yourself. 
end quote. Schlesinger himself would only say in retrospect, quote, this was not the happiest experience working on this film. I didn't get on well with the crew. End quote. So, I mean, you can imagine, like, you know, with that kind of intolerance. And then Jason Bailey actually goes on here. Here he says, uh, with that kind of intolerance right there in the room, the director had a constant reminder of exactly how implicit his film would have to be. When Dustin Hoffman quizzed the director on the exact nature of the central relationship, Schlesinger admonished him, quote, Oh, God, please. It was hard enough to get the financing. Now all we have to do is tell them that we're making a homosexual film. I was hoping we would get the college crowd. Now we'll get no one, end quote. So instead, this is what Jason Bailey says. Instead, much of the film's queerness, at least in regard to their relationship, is in pauses, subtext, and reactions. The close-ups when Rizzo first asks Joe to stay with them are uncomfortably close and intimate. You can all but touch the sweat on their faces. So before I uh, I throw back to you, Adolfo, there is one more little excerpt here that I do want to mention, which is interesting because in a way, Midnight Cowboy in 1967 was, uh, was a pioneer when it came to a kind of portraying, you know, it wasn't a homosexual relationship on paper, like what you were seeing it. But there was hints of it. There was, you know, like uh, uh, Jason Bailey says, there was the subtext, the pauses, the reactions, the close-ups, you know, with Dustin Hoffman, with John Voight. So there was some sort of implication that maybe there was something there without outright saying it. And, I mean, in the 60s, you know, the way, you know, gay, transgender people were portrayed, like he gives an example here of um, there's a film, No Way to Treat a Lady, with Rod Steiger, where he plays a serial killer who adopts a variety of showy, Wacky disguises, including a transgender bar dweller and a gay wig maker. The mincing characterization of the latter is especially cringeworthy, uh, lisping, swishy, and cheap, but a valuable reminder of exactly how gay men were seen even in the sophisticated metropolis of Gotham. A month after Midnight Cowboys release in, in summer 1969, that tide would finally slowly start to turn with the protests and uprising at Greenwich Village's Stonewall Inn. So the Stonewall riots were right after a the release of Midnight Cowboys. So that's it's pretty interesting timing there. But as I said before, this was kind of a pioneer film in a way with the way it portrayed those kinds of relationships because, you know, in that time, it was very cringeworthy how they were portraying like gay people and stereotyping them and transgender people. So, you know, obviously it would get better. Baby steps, it would get better. But during this time, you know, you weren't going to get away with that. Right. And, you know, it, it's funny because you mentioned how the the relationship between two men is very subtle. But then there's there's that sequence where uh, Rizzo is kind of fantasizing about his uh, going to Miami. We'll talk about that a little later where it's the subtlety is a little dropped a little bit there. <laughs> it's right. They're like running and frolicking on the beach and stuff. Um, but um, but yeah, it, it is kind of an important film as far as portraying uh those kind of relationships on screen it was not really that acceptable back then um and that's largely what what garnered it the x rating uh is the frank depiction now obviously you don't see you know explicit you know sexual intercourse between men but uh it's certainly uh heavily heavily implied in, in, in an artistic way, you know? Um, and it's, uh, yeah, that's what guarded it. It's X rating really. Exactly. And, uh, you know, that's, I think one of the reasons why this film, like you mentioned earlier, has become so iconic, not necessarily just, 
in the film community, just overall, I mean, it is the best picture winner, but even in the in the gay LGBTQ plus community as well. Right. Um, so let, let's get into the movie. I've got some notes uh, that I want to talk about, but I kind of wanted to work them in when we're talking about kind of the the flow of the film and kind of like we did with um, with uh, some of our previous entries. Again, we're not going to get necessarily into like scene by scene um more we're going to talk about it more of a general sense of the story uh and then we're going to just stop and pause when we want to talk about something specific um the one thing i want to do bring up is uh the very beginning of the film we open up on a on like an empty uh drive-in theater like an abandoned one um and you know it's this big white screen you see uh, a little kid playing on like a like one of those you know spring horses at playgrounds you know uh, there's some like random horses in the background. It's and it's clearly like an abandoned drive-in, and I kind right. of I'm just cute. Like it's a it is an interesting way to set up the the town. Like, but it ultimately ultimately doesn't have anything to do with the film itself. So I'm wondering if there is some sort of symbolism there that I wasn't seeing, or or it was just like, hey, this is a cool shot. I mean, I'm sure part of it was, hey, this is a cool shot, but at the same time, like you kind of already alluded to. It's probably just more of an example of how desolate the town that Joe Buck is coming from is and why he's – part of the reason why he's trying to leave and try to make it in the big city is because, you know, this town is – you know, there's an abandoned drive-in theater. And there's like, you know, one little boy like riding on that uh, on that little horse thing. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's that kind of town. It's that type of like very lonely – desolate town it's not bustling like new york is so um i think it's more there for the juxtaposition of it all Your misfortune and none of my own. Where's that Joe Buck? Where's that Joe Buck? Where's that Joe Buck? Get along, little doggies. Where is that Joe Buck? Look at this crap. Yeah, where's that Joe Buck? Where's that Joe Buck? Where's that Joe Buck? You're due here at four o'clock. You know what you can do with them dishes. And if you ain't man enough to do it for yourself, I'd be happy to oblige. I really would. Yeah, I, that's that's a good that's a good point. Um, so the, the film basically is is about uh, Joe Buck, who is uh, a cowboy of sorts. He's not a real cowboy. He doesn't, you know, actually herd cows. Uh, but he's he's from Texas, and he's he's he really buys into the cowboy imagery, and he he wants to go to the big city, as you mentioned, to kind of make it big uh, as a male prostitute. Now, in the film, they call him hustlers, but essentially, that's what he is. He wants to be a male prostitute. Um, and uh, that that's his kind of dream is to do is to do that. It's an it's an odd dream uh, when you think about it, but um, but that that's what his uh, that's what his goal is. Um, and it's interesting just to see how you know we see him. Our introduction to him is him kind of preparing himself for for this trip, and he's putting on these you know really nice boots and this like fringe leather jacket and this like brightly colored like kind of sequined shirt, you know. And it's it it's interesting because 
that's not really what a cowboy is, right? Like it's yeah. Uh, it, it reminded me of that line from Die Hard whenever John uh, McClane's like. Ben, I was a fan of Roy Rogers, you know, all those sequin shirts, you know, <laughs> you know, it, it's, like not, it's not like he's clearly like, that's not like a tough guy image. It's like kind of like a, a, a almost a parody of what a, a cowboy is, you know, a cowboy is. Yeah, it's, it's basically the cowboy stereotype, which that uh, which our, our friend Joe Buck here was embracing. So I think that's I think that's part of the whole. uh that's part of the whole, I guess, uh, deal when it comes to Joe Buck. It's like er- it's everything about, you know, his ambition, how he thinks he's going to make it in the city, his, down to his appearance, what he's wearing to actually go into New York. It's, it's all like it's all a big stereotype. It's all a big fantasy, you know, and, you know, eventually, as we see down the line, like that fantasy is about to blow up in his face. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one thing I, I will mention here is that during that opening sequence where he's kind of walking down the streets of uh of this town, uh, which is not really named, I don't think, but it is, uh, it was filmed in a town called Big Spring, Texas. Um, but uh, we hear the uh, Everybody's Talking song, a very kind of iconic song, and that, that's it's it's repeated throughout the film. It's like a leitmotif. Uh, and it's it really it's a really good song. It's a nice song. It's very chill. Uh, and it, it'll get stuck in your head throughout the <laughs> throughout it the will. day. Yes, it will. Um, but, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it gets... It's a very iconic song, and like if you've never heard, like it's one of those songs that you don't know you've heard before until you heard it, until you hear it, you know. Right, right. Um, but before we go on, since we're talking about the beginning, we're talking about Joe Buck. Let's get into uh, John Voight a little bit. So I'm gonna take a little bit out of a Fun City Cinema here from Jason Bailey, where he goes. Now there was the matter of finding their Joe Buck. They could have gone the movie star route. Schlesinger's three-time leading lady Julie Christie slid a copy of the script to her boyfriend Warren Beatty, who wanted the role so badly he offered to film a, quote, secret screen test. But Schlesinger thought it would be a stretch to cast Beatty as a failed prostitute. Quote, if he were the male hustler, the lines would be out to Fire Island, end quote. <laughs> some poor some poor executive even suggested cleaning up the script and repurposing it as an Elvis Presley vehicle. But oh, Lord. Was, oh, Lord. Can you imagine that? <laughs> but it was Marion Doherty, the casting director who was shaking up the film industry with her finds from the New York theater scene, who suggested John Voight. So long story short, John Voight, it came up to John Voight and this actor, Michael uh, Sarazen. Now, Schlesinger actually initially chose Sarazen for the role. However, Sarazen was under contract to Universal which pretty much tripled his price tag in order to get the loan out for uh, for for him to use for Midnight Cowboy. So the produ- and it, now according to Bailey, the producer and director went back to the screen test and invited Dustin Hoffman who had read against each of them to weigh in. Hoffman told them, "Quote, look, they're both good actors. I will be happy to make the picture with either of them, but I will tell you one thing. When I was watching these tests with Michael, I was looking at myself." When I was watching the test with John Voight, I was looking at John Voight, end quote. Voight got the part and a paycheck of $17,500, which is pretty much nothing. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, he worked for scale for, for, for that film, yeah. Pretty much. And then compared to Dustin Hoffman's price tag, which went up after The Graduate, which we'll talk about that once we actually see uh, Rizzo for the first time. But, uh, but yeah, so <laughs> there you go. Now, 
it's interesting that that comment about Warren Beatty because he was a major movie star by that point. Um, I mean, Bonnie and Clyde had just come out like maybe like two or th- two or three years earlier than that, and you know that was a huge movie. Um, and he's right, you know, such not only a big movie star but a major sex symbol. It would have been maybe a little bit unbelievable for him to have the role, but at the same time, you look at John Voight here. I mean. It, we're so I'm so used to seeing John Voight as this like crusty old man that you see him <laughs> like right. this good looking handsome dude you know like uh, it would be very I could totally see him being a, a successful male prostitute because he's he's you know he's tall he's handsome he's he looks very muscular um, but yeah it's it, it's interesting it's just so interesting to see him so young and like you know baby faced almost. Um, and, you know, one of the things that uh, I, I think is interesting, you know, we throughout the film, we get flashbacks. We get two kind of d- different sets of flashbacks. We get one of uh, Joe as a young as a young boy who, you know, looked like he was abandoned by his mother to, to live with his grandmother. And his grandmother was. I don't know, she she somewhat had not exactly a. a, a she seemed like a very outgoing kind of person that was not really always home that much. And she seemed to, to care for, for Joe, but not, it wasn't exactly a, a typical relationship you would have with your grandmother. Um, and another thing that you would see is flashbacks of him, um, uh, with his, what I assume is his first girlfriend. Um, and later on you see images of, uh, of her basically getting, um, Getting raped. So I don't. I don't trying to trying to dance around it, but that's kind of what what ended up happening, and then kind right. of going going insane uh, and being taken to a, a like a mental institution of some sort. So it's interesting. So like, I think the first time I watched it, I kind of didn't really think about that too much. I thought it was just like, oh, these are weird flashbacks. But um, you know, watching it recently, I was like, that probably plays into a lot of the fact that it's why he's going trying to leave Texas is to kind of get away is to kind of mentally escape that kind of trauma that he had. Um, and it just kind of, I don't know why I didn't think of that before, but it was just one of those things that I, I, I thought about this time. Yeah. And um, I mean, it's kind of funny going back to John Boyd a little bit uh, before midnight cowboy. Like I think the first thing I ever saw him in was him get eaten by an anaconda in anaconda. So <laughs> I think the first time I ever saw a John Voight movie, and it wasn't even a real John Voight. He just happened to be in it, and he got eaten whole by the oh, end of with this with this terrible, uh, like I think it was like a Brazilian accent or something. Oh, so bad. <laughs> That's right, bro. Uh, so that, but now, like finally, you know, now I've expanded my repertoire, and now in- including Midnight Cowboy. So now, I mean, seeing him here. When I watched it for the first time, it was kind of almost a shock because, like you said, I'm used to seeing him as this crusty old guy. And now, like, he's kind of this uh, happy-go-lucky kind of suave, uh, pretty uh, pretty handsome guy, you know, who, you know, probably in, in the real world <laughs> probably could have made it as a hustler, quote-unquote hustler. But, you know, as pertains to this story, he was a major fly. He got over, like, crotch rod, as they say. So, <laughs> so yeah. I don't think modern day John Voight would approve of Midnight Cowboy. It's interesting that he would come from that and then turn into kind of like the opposite on the political spectrum. I just find it interesting. Yeah, it's kind of funny how that worked out, didn't it? (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I don't really have much of a commentary there. It's just it's just an observation. I think is it's, it's it's an odd thing to me. Yeah, it is. Um, uh, so you know he takes a bus out to New York, and can we get this is where we get a lot of those flashbacks, and as, as he's kind of thinking about you know his past, and um, we I just want to point one thing out. There was a sign. Uh, there's like a billboard as he as he's dry, as they're kind of towards the beginning where it's like if you don't have an oil well get one, and I, and I was just thinking like what <laughs> yeah how how would you get an oil well? <laughs> what is that about you know I was like okay sure I would love an oil well you know but how do I get one you know apparently in 1969 people could just buy oil wells you know who knows <laughs> um. Yeah, he, he meets. Uh, it is interesting because you get during this bus ride, you kind of get a a glimpse into his character, right? So, at the beginning, when he's kind of putting all his stuff on, all his cowboy stuff on, like you get you get the idea that he's really into this kind of persona of being like a cowboy. He's really into it. He's gonna go to the city to do something kind of, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, decadent or, or not decadent, but uh, you know, kind of sleazy. So Jason Bailey says. <laughs> The most disturbing images, of course, were found in Times Square. When Joe Buck arrives in New York, he rents a skeezy room at a dumpy hotel overlooking 42nd Street. And though we're never told explicitly why he goes there, we have to assume it's the same reason everyone else does, because it's the center of everything. And when Joe's plan to collect the riches of unhappy city women proved unsurprisingly flawed, he's reduced to sleeping in grindhouses and cruising under the marquees. Schlesinger was fascinated by the cognitive dissonance between the inhabitants and the visitors, between the people who worked in Midtown and the people who lived there. Quote, I'm fascinated when I see the West Side start to come out of their hutches in the morning. End quote. He told a look reporter on a set visit describing a, quote, mixture of violence, desperation and humor all on one street. End quote. That was the mixture he had to capture on celluloid. So he's already describing like. Already, like, 42nd Street has the reputation that 42nd Street has during this time. So, uh, I mean, even Hollander talked about how, you know, he pretty much tried to build this, like, Trojan horse device of sorts to hide a camera to be able to just kind of just film life in New York, to kind of just get even some B-roll of just people living their lives in New York, especially on 42nd Street. And you know, some of the shots here with John Voy on 42nd Street already, like, it's it's creepy. It's disturbing because you already know, like us watching it in 2021, we know how 42nd Street is during that time. And they were filming on the real streets. Those are real pedestrians walking by, especially when we get to later with uh, Dustin Hoffman, the scene, the infamous I'm walking here scene. That was a real they couldn't close the street. You know, they didn't have the, the permit or the money to do that. So they had to film with real pedestrians, with real traffic. And that's what happened here, too. When you see the scenes with Joe Buck standing outside the theaters on 42nd Street, basically cruising, you know, those are real people walking by. And it's uh, it's just it's it's a nice. Looking back now on, on I, from 2021 eyes, it's a nice kind of photograph, historical photograph of the city back then. Obviously, I'm sure it wasn't great to live in. But just from a historical perspective, from a cultural perspective, it's a great snapshot of, of history and life back then. Yeah, and it's interesting because if you're younger, um, and like you and I both are, uh, well, I mean, I'm not that young anymore, but but w- when we have experienced uh, Times Square, and you obviously being a um, uh, being 
closer to to New York than I am have probably visited Times Square way up more often than I have. But it's it's been it, it's it's very touristy now. Like it's very. I'm not going to say clean, but it's like as clean as New York can get, right? Like very flashy and there's families walking around. There's, you know, chain restaurants and uh, Disney stores and M&M stores and all this sort of stuff, right? But back then, it was not, it was kind of sleazy, right? And it is interesting to see the juxtaposition, not the juxtaposition, but the, 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 like you said, the kind of like the, the snapshot of that back then and and the fact that it wasn't dressed up and it was just like this is what it is right now because we're filming out in the street without any extras with just people just out in the street um and it was it's just a a very and like you know with real locations you know i think the the what there was a set i think the um i think rizzo's apartment was a set and i think that where they had that kind of Andy Warhol kind of party was a set, but most for, for most everything else that was, those were all real locations. Yeah. Um, what kind of funny thing I wanted to, wanted to mention is apropos of nothing is whenever he's kind of checking out his room and, uh, <laughs> it costs 25 cents to watch TV. TV. <laughs> <I don't know laughs> why. Such a, like, can you imagine having to put in a 25 cents to watch TV? Especially now, I mean, when you go to a hotel room now, you have the big flash screens already there. Like, can you imagine having to put a quarter in every time just to watch TV? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I just I was uh, away this weekend, um, uh, and you know, we went into the hotel room, and the ho- I mean, the the TV's just on with like on the hotel room channel, like that tells you everything, right? <laughs> and then to compare that with like, yeah, twenty five cents to watch like a beat up crappy TV. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I just yeah. find that really amusing. Um, but yeah, you know, it's during the scene he kind of just like kind of just we kind of get the kind of montage of, of the stuff you're talking about of him just and it's beautiful shots, right? Because like it, it's you see him kind of center of the frame, right? In complete focus amongst this sea of people, right? And as he's walking through this sea of people and they're all kind of blurred out because they're not in focus and everything, but he is like in the frame directly in focus. It's beautiful, beautiful uh, cinematography. Yeah, yeah, there's that pretty famous scene. Like, I mean, John Boyd's a, a tall dude. So, of course, he stands tall over like the regular pedestrians. So the camera just focuses on him as he's walking down the sidewalk among this, like you said, this sea of people. And... You know, it's one of the uh, one of the more uh, famous shots from this movie, uh, and it's just you know he starts to go, you know, starts checking out the city, being all touristy. But then, like as we're gonna get into now, he starts already looking for women that he can try to hustle. And it's funny because you once he gets there, you realize he doesn't have a plan. <laughs> He's just walking around, <laughs> following women, and like. He didn't think it through. He just went. No, there. he did not. He just was like following women, and like he realized, like you can see the look on his face, like, "How do I start this? How do I, st- how do I get into this whole thing?" Yeah, he just like he just literally just looks around, sees a woman, and just goes up and starts to proposition her, like in the middle of the street. Like, like you said, he did not think this through. There's also, um, I, Hollander talked about this on the conversation also, and it's in the book. There's the uh, the shot of the guy on the sidewalk. That everybody's just walking around him, which that was a real incident, by the way. So um, Hollander talks about how, I guess, while they were setting up a shot 
they were actually in front of um uh what, what was it? What did they say? I think it was uh the one of the department stores, Bonwit Teller. So there was literally a guy on the sidewalk, asleep, comatose, whatever, probably even dead, as uh, Jason Bailey Price is in the book, uh, in front of that department store. And people were just, like, unbothered. They were just walking, stepping over him, stepping around him. Uh, and then Hollander says in the book, he says, quote, people just avoided going anywhere near him, and it both horrified and fascinated me, and I put it in. So when he told Schlesinger about it, he said, let's put it in the movie. So they did it in front of Tiffany's, that shot, if, if you remember. So... Yeah, that whole guy on laying in the middle of the sidewalk scene, that's based on a real incident that Hollander witnessed with his own eyes in the streets of New York. Wow, that's 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 kind of upsetting. <laughs> it is. Um another thing I wanted to kind of uh point out is uh he when he finally talks to someone, it's this lady where he's uh comes up with this lame excuse about trying to get to the Statue of Liberty. To Liberty. And I, for whatever reason, like I thought that lady looked like Shirley MacLaine, and I actually had to look it up because, like, is that Shirley MacLaine? It isn't. It is not Shirley MacLaine. But it like it took me like a second. And I was like, right, huh? It just looked like her. Um, and then, it's funny because like it's the first time he actually got got the chance to talk to somebody, and then he doesn't really have a follow up. He's just like, yeah, I want to get the Statue of Liberty, and then uh, he compliments her in some way where she's like, oh, yeah, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. So like he has no game at all. <laughs> Yeah, it's just it's it's funny just uh, watching him try to work and just pretty much fall on his face every time. At least in these early scenes, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty funny because it's just you start realizing that he just has no idea what he's doing. Yeah. He's in way over his head. Now um, he does get lucky uh, in in a manner of speaking uh, as he stops to flirt with uh, a lady walking her dog, uh, walking her very. Um, very foofy looking poodle. Um, and uh, we, as we find out, this woman's name is Cass, played by Sylvia Miles. Um, and very rich looking lady outside of like a rich looking apartment building. He starts flirting with her. She's not really having much of it. But here's what's kind of interesting is that she's not really having much of it. But then he kind of follows her in and she like kind of gestures for him to come in. But I didn't really get that. How do I put this? I didn't really see from what he was doing that she like bought into it. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, I watched it for the first time and I was like, I mean, did did his game work? Like, I, I guess like, you know, what's that say? A broken clock is right twice a day. So, you know, maybe he just propositioned so many people that eventually somebody was going to say yes. You know, but then the second time it seemed like, wait a minute. Maybe she's the one out there kind of waiting for guys to come hit on her, and then she's the one that ends up propositioning them. So that's how I saw it the second time. The first time, I was just confused, and I just thought, you know what? Maybe he finally he just got lucky. Second time, I feel, okay, maybe she's out there on purpose, you know, and then just basically Joe Buck fell into her trap. So that's how I saw it the second time. Yeah, I I, I think this is – and we'll get to it in a second, but he clearly, uh, I think, got conned here. But so as we cut to the apartment, then there, you know, 
<laughs> it's a funny scene because she's like having a conversation. I think it's either I'm pretty sure it's her husband or if it's not her husband, it's like a boyfriend of some sort. Um, and basically talking about oh how she'll see him later, it'll have dinner, blah blah blah. While while Joe is very kind of obnoxiously trying to make out with her, um, and they give the phone to the dog to say hi to the guy at the other end and everything. Um, but uh, you know they they eventually she hangs up the phone. They eventually do their business and um she uh basically i think what happens is that he gets hustled on his first hustle <laughs> what a geek as brian alvarez would say a geek <laughs> so after the deed is done he basically tries to ask her for money and she starts throwing this whole fit this whole like acting crying right where she's like, you know, I can't believe, well, you, you know, you're thinking that, you know, uh, I'm still a catch, you know, why would I want have to pay for this? You know, and then she starts, like, crying to the point where, like, Joe Joe Buck pretty much says, oh, you know, here, here, you want you take some cab money, here, 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 take some money, take some money, you know, and then he opens up his wallet, like, here, take whatever you need. So you're like, well, you want a 10? You want a 10? And she takes the $20. <laughs> and, and by I the way, I looked, I looked it up, and uh, the that's the equivalent, like, of him giving her about seventy-five dollars, ha! In nineteen sixty-nine dollars, that's crazy. That yeah, is nuts. which which he doesn't have a lot of money to begin with, and he and he right. and he did that. It's not a was not a bright move, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah, it was. It's funny. Like she she used him for sex and then got him to pay her. It's brilliant. Right. Like, and you just see it, just how bad he is at this. I mean, not only were we seeing earlier who need to know how to even approach these women, but just how completely bad at this whole thing he is. Like, he he's got confidence in his own, uh, let's say his swordsmanship, but he has no, he has no, he's so naive about everything else. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, and this is just the beginning of his bad luck. Uh, yeah, because I believe um, shortly after is where he he meets uh, he meets Rizzo at like some diner or something, um, and you know he ha- kind of has a conversation with him and tells him about what he's trying to do. Um, there's some people that kind of come up to him that I kind of want to just point out. There's a uh, I'm assuming it is a gay man, uh, but he sounds like like I don't know if he was dubbed over or not, but he sounds like a woman. Um, and I'm not trying to make a joke. Like he legitimately sounds like there's a female voice coming out of him. And I was just wondering if that was like a dub over or he just was putting on that voice or or what? It's just an interesting uh, scenario because he because Joe clearly has not seen anything like that before. Terrific shirt. Are you speaking to me? Well, I was just admiring that colossal shirt. I mean, that is one hell of a shirt. I bet you paid a pretty price for it, am I right? Oh, I ain't cheap. Yeah, birds. I mean, I say it's all right shirts. I like birds. I don't like to have a lot of, you know, cheap stuff on my back. Sure. Hi, cowboy. Got a cigarette? Hey, sweetheart. More goddamn f***s in this town. Oh, kiss it, Ratso. Up yours. You gotta watch out for that. Hey, you really know the ropes. Oh, damn, I wish I bumped into you before. Huh. 
I'm Joe Buck from Texas. Enrico Rizzo from the Bronx. And I'm going to buy you a drink. What the hell do you think of that? Well, I don't mind if I do. Right. I mean, I didn't really catch that when I was seeing it. I mean, it, it felt like it, it was natural. But now that you mentioned it, it, it very well could have been a dub voice. Um, but you kind of the, those two the, like the two people that are talking to them uh, as as to Rizzo, they kind of basically point out that he's like this disgusting con man, and you know right. Rizzo just kind of takes offense to it and everything. And and Joe should have probably listened, but he didn't. Um, but we, we get very close uh, shortly thereafter. This is when we get the famous "I'm walking here" scene, and there is some debate slash controversy over this scene. Um, Dustin Hoffman does say that it was an improvised line, um, but uh, I'm trying to figure out. Um, Jerome Hellman apparently disputes this, and he says that the taxi cab was supposed to pretend to hit uh, Hoffman, but he got too close. And then he was still supposed to say those lines. Apparently those lines were scripted, but he got too close and he still said the lines. But Hoffman says that's not true, that it was a real cab and he improvised the lines. So who knows, right? Of course well, Hoffman's going to say the other one because it makes him look good. But that could have also been the reality as well. But these gals that want to buy it, most of them are old and dignified. Social registered types, you know what I mean? They can't be trotting down at Times Square to pick out the merchandise. They gotta have some kind of uh, middleman. And that's where old Daniel comes in, you know what I mean? Hey! I'm walking here! I'm walking here! Up yours, you son of a bitch! You don't talk me that way! Get out of here! Don't worry about that. Actually, that ain't a bad way to pick up insurance, you know. Well, Bailey talks about this in the book, so I'm going to read you that section because it may put this issue to rest. Maybe not, but um, so remember, I had mentioned earlier that Adam Hollander pretty much tried to uh, he wanted to he basically built like a Trojan horse, like a wooden box to put like the camera in and a camera guy big enough for a cameraman to fit into to be able to, you know, work the camera because they pretty much had to shoot most of this gorilla style on the streets. You know, they couldn't get the permits to close the streets to make an actual set. They just had to film with the real people, with the real traffic going through. So, as uh, Hoffman tells it, Hollander and his camera were hiding in a van to shoot a scene of Rizzo and Joe walking and talking down a couple of city blocks, which they couldn't afford to close off. Quote, it was a difficult scene logistically because they were real. those were real pedestrians and there was real traffic, Hoffman recalled. And Schlesinger wanted to do it in one shot. He didn't want to cut, end quote. Timing their progress to the traffic lights and whims of their fellow pedestrians proved more difficult than they'd imagined. Quote, it was many takes, and then the timing was right. Suddenly, we were doing this take, and we knew it was going to work. We got to the signal just as it went green, so we could keep walking. But it just happened. There was a real cab trying to beat the signal. Almost hit us. This is Hoffman, uh, Dustin Hoffman saying this. In that moment, Hoffman did the unthinkable. He broke character. When you watch the scene, you hear his voice change. It drops out of Rizzo's high register into a gruff, lower pitch, much closer to Hoffman's own. As the frustrated actor bangs on the hood and shouts at the cabbie, I'm walking here, I'm walking here. Up yours, you son of a bitch. What he meant, he would later explain, was, quote, We're shooting a scene here. 
and this is the first time we ever got it right, and you have fucked this up, end quote. But it also works for the moment and the character, not just what he's saying, but the way he says it, as if Rizzo is temporarily adopting a tough guy voice and stance that he's had to learn to survive on these streets. Schlesinger, for his part, would always claim the line wasn't an improvisation and recalled setting the taxi and staging the confrontation. It's also possible that he was simply remembering, as Hoffman would, that he was so delighted with the -the off-the-cuff moment that he restaged it for subsequent takes. But he certainly wasn't closed off to improvisations, on set or especially in rehearsals, where he would let the actors go on tape, have the tapes transcribed, and ask Salt to rework the scene using the best moments and ideas. So, I don't know if that helps, but according to Dustin Hoffman... It seems like it's a little column A, a little column B. Yeah. Because, like, he's saying... because, you know, they're saying it's improvised, but then he's also saying that they may have done takes of it afterwards. So that, that Schlesinger it's, liked it so much that they just they did it. They restaged it to do it again. So who knows just, what take that is that we're watching? It's it's weird that there's so much so like so much kind of dispute over such a famous scene. Like, I feel like I've I had seen that I'm walking here shot before I ever watched this movie. One of those Hollywood mysteries, kind of like what Al Pacino uh, was snorting in Scarface in that infamous uh, cocaine snorting scene in, in the, at the end of the movie. Like, what, what was it? Was it dried milk? Was it a salt? <laughs> uh, who, who, baby powder? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> um, so, you know, you see that Rizzo, you know, as we, you know, we, we were introduced to Rizzo, basically. Um, I, I almost throughout the film keep wanting to call him Rizzo the Rat like the Muppet. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's Ratso Rizzo, um, which is where Rizzo the Rat came from, by the way. Um, but and it's funny because you just saw him get conned by by uh, by Sylvia Miles, and then he gets conned again by Dustin Hop by Rizzo by Rizzo, and you can tell he's getting conned. Like Rizzo is clearly conning him. The audience can tell he's conning him. But Joe did not learn his lesson the first time. And uh, it, it, what what happens is a really kind of funny, hilarious scene when he goes up to Mr. Uh, Mr. Daniels or Mr. O'Daniels apartment because Rizzo basically sold him on basically being a pimp. Right. And when right. he gets there, the way he's talking, it seems like that's what they're talking about. Like, oh, you have a big, strong back. You're going to need it. You know, and you're going to be on your knees and you're going to and you're like, OK, but then it seems <laughs> then it kind of turns into like. Then you think like he's kind of hitting on him a little bit, and you're like, That's "Oh wait, maybe this isn't what it is." Too. Yeah. And then you finally get the punchline, which is that he's not a pimp at all. He's like like a born again Christian that's trying to recruit people to like into Christianity because <laughs> he like opens his door and there's like plastic electronic Jesus, you know, God saves or whatever, and he like runs, you know, you know. Joe Buck runs out and he's trying to find Rizzo and you get kind of that, that kind of, it's a chase sequence, but it's kind of like a fantasy chase sequence. Cause it's like, it's in black and white. You see him like chasing Rizzo through like the subways. You kind of, it's, it's almost seems like he's catching up to him, but he's never quite there. He, there's a shot of him choking him, but like, it's not really real. He's not like, you can see that he's running after him, but he never actually catches up to him. Um, and it, it's a really fascinating kind of uh, sequence there. It is, it is, and it's just, uh, I mean, that punchline with, with O'Daniel was, was hilarious. The first time I saw it, I popped, because, like, 
I thought the scene was going to go one way, and then it properly subverted my expectations. And we got that punch that with the electronic Jesus or whatever that was, and that was uh, and that was great. And then of course, like pretty much the fear and the rage in in Joe Buck's eyes, because like you know he's freaked out by what he's seen, and then at the same time he wants to get his hands on on a uh, Ratso Rizzo. But uh, but speaking of Ratso Rizzo, Dustin Hoffman. Now I'm not gonna get in. I'm not gonna read everything here about Dustin Hoffman from the book, but uh, I will try to sum it up as best as I can. So basically, Schlesinger and uh, Jerome Hellman, they uh, saw Dustin Hoffman in an off-Broadway play. Uh, it was a one-character drama. Basically, he played a caretaker in the basement of a factory, and then um, Schlesinger basically said, "You know, this is it. That's my Ratso Rizzo right there." You know, and of course. According to Jason Bailey, it was a financial incentive as well. Think about it. A no-name, off-Broadway actor, you know, that's not going to break the budget. You know, he could, they probably can get him for cents on the dollar at this point. But, uh, you know, they sent the script to Dustin Hoffman and immediately said yes to it. But now I'm going to read the uh, the paragraph here because it's, it's, it's pretty great. Of course, a funny thing happened on the way to Midnight Cowboy. During its lengthy period of pre-production and fundraising, Dustin Hoffman went off to make The Graduate for Mike Nichols, and when that film took the nation by storm in December 1967, it made him a movie star. What could have been a disaster for the filmmakers became a coup. Hoffman still wanted to make the movie, despite the advice of the likes of Nichols, whom Hoffman remembered asking, quote, I made you a star, and you're going to throw it all away? You're a leading man, and now you're going to play this? The Graduate was so clean, and this is so dirty, end quote. So... There you go. You have Mike Nichols basically telling Dustin Hoffman, don't take this role. I made you a star. Now you're going to go back to something like this. So, but it's funny. It, but what's funny, though, before I, uh, I let you comment, Adolfo, is the, the, what Nichols says, apparently, where he goes, the graduate was so clean. Well, like we talked about when we did the graduate in 2020, 2021 eyes, it's really not that clean to begin with. <laughs> so it, it's not it's not that clean. And it's, uh, uh, you know. Midnight Cowboy is a better movie. <laughs> you, know, you know how I feel about Graduate. <laughs> um, so at this point, you know, Joe's been conned out of all his money. Um, and, oh, you know, I didn't want to kind of head back to, to Sylvia Miles' character real quick. Um, what I find interesting is she's in the movie for maybe five minutes. And that got her an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Mm-hmm. Oh, I did not. Uh, I did not know that. Yeah, I I, I found that very interesting. Um, I, I it's just kind of an odd, odd situation. But anyway, so he 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 basically is out of his money. He gets kicked out of the the apartment, the hotel, whatever it is, um, because he hasn't paid his his rent, uh, and he's just kind of out on the streets now. Um, and he's clearly too. Uh, naive for this for this business and for this city. Yeah, um, you know, there's I think this is the point where like there's even a scene where he walks past like um I guess a diner and it has like the uh, help wanted for dishwasher ad on the window, and for a brief second I think he even he contemplates like you know should I take this job because I have I'm broke right now I got kicked out of the hotel I have no money. You know, I don't have any things. I don't have any possessions. So for a brief second, he ponders taking that job. But then it's like, 
well, I left Texas. I left a dishwashing job in Texas. You know, now I'm going to do that in New York. So, you know, he pretty much kind of resists the urge to take that job and just says, you know what? If I'm going to suffer, then I'm, I'm going to suffer without having to be a dishwasher anymore. So I thought that was a very interesting uh, scene and kind of added to, to Joe Buck's character a little bit because even, even in that situation, that desperate situation where he pretty much should have taken the job just to survive, he kind of stood firm. Whether that was a good decision or not, that's, again, that's a judgment call. <laughs> but, you know, it kind of just adds to the kind of the resolve of the character saying, you know, he, he's, he's going to succeed. He wants to succeed. He's going to keep trying, even though he's out in the street now. He's out in the street. He, he's, uh, he's, you know, pretty much down on his luck. He's in that diner with that woman and the fake rat, which I still don't really understand what that was about. Um, like, I, I, do you get that? Like, what was that? Like, with that woman playing with the little toy rat, like, all over her space and all over her face and everything? What was that? Yeah, I, I think that was just showing, like, weird New York. That's all. Um, but he does uh, kind of what he thinks is get a little bit of luck. He's standing outside a movie theater at one point where uh, a young uh, Bob Balaban uh, comes Balaban. up to him. Um, interestingly enough, uh, if, if you know anything about Bob Balaban, his, he comes from a family that, uh, that kind of used to uh, own uh, a chain of movie theaters right whenever like the movies were taking off as a business. So that was like he comes from that legacy. And then his character in here is doing some naughty things in a movie theater. So I just found that kind of amusing. Um, it, 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 but it is very amusing. Um, he's basically a, a young student and he uh, presumably gay and he uh, offers to pay Joe uh, money to uh how do I say this in a family-friendly way? Um, to perform, to perform on him um, in, the, in the movie theater, and it's it's interesting because here you get Joe like he clearly has a um, uh, a what's the word a um, a hesitancy to do this. He doesn't really want necessarily do this with a with another man, but he's like let it letting it happen, and I think he. There's a there's a shot of as it's happening, he's kind of imagining his old girlfriend. I believe her name is Annie or Crazy Annie, um, and uh, you, he's watching some sort of sci-fi movie, and you know uh, you can tell he has finished because in the sci-fi movie a rocket is firing. So, a little <laughs> a little, not super subtle there, but you know. <laughs> yeah. So um. So when it comes to so with with that scene now. Immediately after, you know, he takes him into the bathroom to basically collect payment. And, of course, Bob Balaban's character, the uh, the student, doesn't have anything. So this is now where we start to see the not-so-nice kind of rough-around-the-edges, Joe. Because before this, like you mentioned, even on, like, on, on the beginning when he's leaving Texas, when he's on the bus, when he's even on the streets when he first gets to New York, he's very polite. He's very nice. You know, now this is like survival mode, Joe. And survival mode, Joe... Cause kind of an asshole, so he starts seeing him be uh, almost beating the guy up, in a sense, you know, because he doesn't have any money. But uh, you know, again, yeah. kind of like the goodness of Joe still kind of wins out in the end because he kind of just lets him go, you know, because the uh, Bob Balaban's character is just telling him, you know, take my watch, you know, I'll just, you know, uh, uh, can I just, you know, is he's trying to give him his watch, and at the end he says, you know, just I don't want to want that, just go, you know. So in the end, he 
his goodness is still there. It's, it, it wins out, but like you kind of see, there's kind of a dark side to him now. Yeah, there's a dark side, um, but it, it is kind of he has, like you said, he's he's been he's at his lowest point, so he's kind of. You know, when this guy basically says he's not going to pay him because he doesn't have any money, I mean, he kind of just loses his cool. Yeah. Um, for the record, the movie that uh, that they were watching in the uh, in the movie theater was called Men into Space Moon Probe. <laughs> I will. I'll. You do with that what you will. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to say I, I did catch some. Um, some of the marquees and some of the posters as he walks through town. I just, I, I found it kind of amusing what some of them were. Um, one of them is the Thomas Crown Affair, the original with uh, Steve McQueen. Right. Um, another one is Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. Uh, Tarzan and the Valley of Gold. Uh, and Ultraman is, uh, is another one. But nice. um, the one that really uh, amused me was one called The Twisted Sex Diary of Justine. <laughs> that's 42nd Street for you, man. I think that's one of the kind of movies that uh, Travis Pickle would be watching. There you go. As he eats, as he eats his uh, as he drinks his RC cola, his RC cola, and he uh, eats his uh, his chuckles. The chuckles. That's what they are. The chuckles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, uh, he does finally run back into to Rizzo, uh, who kind of just randomly on the street and oh, actually th- I think he's in a diner and um, Rizzo kind of tries to make it up to him by taking him back to his, to his uh, apartment as it were, which is basically just a condemned building. Um, yeah. And I, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, but then it gets wacky too, because it's like, you know, he's taking him to it, to his, you know, condemned apartment building. And he, he just tries to like put a positive spin on it. So you can still see kind of happy go lucky Ratso Rizzo where he goes, Oh, I got my own private entrance here. You know, you're the only one who knows about it. <laughs> you know, you know, watch the plank, you'll break a goddamn skull. No way to collect insurance that way. <laughs> you know, so even then like he's still like he's still all about the hustle too. Like he's all about the, the con. Even with when uh, when showing up when showing Joe Buck the uh, the apartment. So I thought that was pretty funny. And we also get kind of a, a, a start to getting introduced to the fact that Rizzo is is ill. Um, I don't remember him doing that much coughing in like the first couple scenes of them, but this is where you you really start to see him like coughing up like all the time. His his teeth are really nasty, although that just could just could just be for neglect from neglect. But he's um, he's always sweating. He just not never looks in good shape. Um, and he's always limping. And uh, one thing I found out a little bit of trivia here: the reason, uh, the way he got that limp uh, was to basically walk around with like rocks in his in his I think left shoe to be able that's to get correct. That limp, which that's is correct. That that's in the book. Ugh, ouch. <laughs> yeah. But but speaking uh, of the cough though, there's there's a funny story. There's a funny little uh, tidbit here in the book because um, you know actors. And I'm sure any actor listening to this will attest to that. Maybe not on every uh, set, but on on a couple sets, especially when you have two very talented guys working opposite each other. There's going to be instances where you guys try to one up each other, you know, not because you're, you know, you're trying to get the other guy or because you hate the other actor. But, you know, it's more about like, you know, making the best come out of the both of you. It's kind of just making sure that you're both um, 
putting out the best that you can. So this happened here, too, between John Voight and Dustin Hoffman. They were trying to one-up each other, kind of a friendly sort of competition kind of way. So there was a point when Dustin Hoffman was trying to get the character down still, which, like you mentioned already, Adolfo, and getting the, the, the walk, the limp correctly, was he put pebbles in his shoes and walked around that way, which, I mean, I, I can't even imagine how that, what that's like. Yeah, I think there was one scene they were filming where they were walking across the bridge where um, uh, so here's how Dustin Hoffman says it. He goes, quote, we were trying to act up a storm, not knowing what the fuck we were doing. Hoffman recalled. And because I was so nervous that I was going to come across fraudulent and not have the right cough, I tried to do the cough as realistically as I could. Each time I tried to do it more realistically until finally I did it so realistically I threw up all over John, end quote. <laughs> the actor, un- understandably shaken, sought out his director later, Hoffman said. Schlesinger told, quote, Schlesinger told me that John had gone up to him afterwards and said he was so happy to have gotten the part and he knew that I gave him a good word. You know, Dustin's a great actor and everything, and I'm just asking you because I don't want to tell him how to play his character, but is he going to do that in a lot of scenes? He thought I'd steal every scene if I threw up on him. He thought that was a choice I made, like the gloves were off, end quote. So he tried to get the cough down so much that at one point he just threw up all over John Voight. And John Voight, because he thought that was just him trying to one-up him, went to ask Lessinger, is he going to do that to me every take? Because, you know, I'm not trying to tell him what to do, but, like, I just I don't want to be thrown up on on every scene. So I, I thought that was that was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had not heard that one before, that that uh, that before. Yeah. Um, so uh, as he's um as they're in the uh, apartment, there's one thing that I think is kind of funny. Now the apartment is, uh, I believe, one of the few sets that they actually used in the film. Um, but there's there's a funny moment where, um, you know, he tells him, "Oh, lie down, lie down," you know, and, and you know he sit, he lies down in this like disgusting bed, and he's like, "Here, I'll I'll pull the shade down for you," and he gets up, he pulls it down like an inch. <laughs> Like it does absolutely nothing. Like I don't know what I don't know what he was trying to do. It does absolutely nothing. Um and he has like this nightmare where he kind of gets the where he flashes back to the um and this is where I kind of want to know what's going on because he flashes back to the uh basically the the rape of, of Annie, uh where basically a bunch of boys kind of uh I'm trying to say it sensitively, uh, but basically they kind of gang raped her um while he was being held down he couldn't stop it but it also you know kind of juxtaposes like as if rizzo was there during that hap when when it was happening but it also has other shots of him his grandmother like punishing him for something uh, like spanking him and then what looks like about to give him an enema um and i'm just (laughs) like i i there's something about the relationship with the grandmother that that kind of shapes him and seems off, but I can't like they never explicitly say what it is, you know. Right. It it, it that's one of those really weird, um, really weird scenes where like there's a lot going on because it is like a nightmare sequence, so there's a lot going on. You know, you have the flashbacks to um, his girlfriend's rape in the past. You have you know flashbacks to his grandmother being weird, and then for some reason Rizzo was in the middle of that. <laughs> which obviously you know is anachronistic but you know obviously we're we're dealing with a nightmare here so i mean what it means i guess i don't know is necessarily we're trying to get more of just 
Joe Buck's past and kind of what kind of got him to this point, like why he wanted to leave Texas, like kind of you, what you alluded to earlier. I'm sure he left because of that whole situation with Annie. But, you know, then, of course, with the grandmother and then the mother, like, it, it, it gets very, uh, very subtle. Like, of course, like, it's pretty much left to your imagination. Like, they're not telling you what exactly the relationship is or what's going on in the past. You know, they're kind of trying to let you put the pieces together, which I like. I like when, when directors do that, you know. But even now, so, even with, with these two viewings, it's like, you know, I'm still not quite sure what that backstory is. But whatever it is, it's pretty much got Joe Buck to where he is now. And shortly afterwards, uh, you do see, uh, I think probably one of the scenes you were talking about earlier where like the, how to, I forget how you put it, but that, uh, you know, you get these close-ups with the, you know, of their faces, they're talking to each other and it's like the, it's like a palpable kind of something in the air, you know, when they're discussing right. and he's, you know, he's like, I'm not staying here. You're not, you know, I'm not. I'm not gay, although he uses the the F slur. Um, and uh, Rico's like, I don't, or sorry, he he we he reveals his name is Rico, um, and he's like, well, I, I'm not, and you know, I'm just asking you to stay, you know, I'm just trying to give you a place to stay. And then they just, there's clearly an an uneasy relationship, and um, but Joe or obviously has nowhere else to go, um, but he feels uncomfortable with this whole situation, and you know, it's. It's an interesting, it's an interesting scene, and you're right. They, they, there's like not extreme close-ups, but they're very close-in tights, uh, close-ups of them, and their faces are like just drenched in sweat. Uh, it's, it's an interesting scene. And I like, uh, I like what uh, well Rizzo says to um, to Joe Buck here because he's still calling him, you know, Ratso in his place so he goes on this whole thing like you know you know my own place my name ain't Ratso. i mean it just so happens that in my own place my name is enrico salvatore rizzo at least call me rico my own goddamn place so i just love the juxtaposition of him saying you know call me no rico in my own place when he's pretty much squatting in an abandoned building so i just think that i, I love that and it just adds i think it's very humorous and it adds to the to the character more yeah um so the two begin kind of this relationship, like a business relationship, uh, friendship. You know, they're they're squatting in his apartment uh, and uh, together. And Rico cooks for him and like kind of looks after him, almost kind of like a a, a mother hen kind of figure. Um, and they eventually they they start to kind of maybe Rico's going to try to kind of get work for Joe. Uh, you know, and he tells him about uh, Florida. Which is funny because, like, oh, yeah, there's tons of women down there that you can hustle. But, like, how does he know? You know? <laughs> like, you don't think – I don't <laughs> right. think Rico or, or Razzo has ever left New York City in his life. Uh, but but he's talking about how there's, you know, all these, you know, middle-aged women ready to get hustled down in Florida and Miami. Right. Like, he's some sort of expert. When, again, like, it's kind of like, you know, Joe Buck from Texas, you know, not – Having ever set foot in New York City, just had like these, you know, visions and these ideas of how it was going to go, which I mean, you can say the same thing for for Ratso here. You know, he thinks this is how it's going to go down in Florida. This is what Florida has. And, um, you know, it probably would have been wrong uh, had he gotten there. But we'll get to that later. Yeah. Um, and, and, and and with this relationship, like uh, you see Ratso trying to take care of uh, trying to take care of uh Joe, he 
shines his shoes, which is, you know, uh, he tells him about his dad, how his dad died because, you know, uh, he took a shoe shine person, shoe shiner all these years and kind of messed up his lungs. And, uh, you know, you see him cutting his hair. Um, but yeah, the, there's a funny moment where he's shining his shoes in like the, the, the train station and he basically steals like, like the shoe shiner stuff that they had left over there, you know, and the yeah. cop comes up and like, wants his shoes shined. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you see Rizzo kind of cutting his hair, trying to make him more presentable and stuff. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Isn't this also the scene where they start talking about how like basically, you know, Rizzo is like, oh, you're starting to smell. And he's like, you know. What do you mean? I'm starting to smell like you look like you haven't changed your underwear since I got here. Or what, and they have that whole conversation. That's a great scene, by the way, that whole dialogue between them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's it's interesting because there's like this animosity, but there's also this friendship between them. It's just an interesting it's an interesting juxtaposition between those two because, you know, he it, it, you could see Rizzo like trying to like. You know, he's so lonely. He wants like this friend and he's trying to like befriend Joe and Joe is like taking in like the the benefits of it but he's still treating him like dirt um uh and then obviously you know that that eventually evolves but it, it's at the beginning he's just kind of being mean to him it's great because he goes um he goes in new york no rich lady with any class at all buys out cowboy crap anymore they're laughing at you <laughs> be, uh, on the street ain't nobody laughing at me on the street behind your back i see them laughing at you fella oh what the hell you know about women anyway when was the last time you scored boy that's about i talk about at, at confession we're not talking about me now, Joe. What was the last time I went to confession? That's between me and my confessor. <laughs> that whole dialogue <laughs> between them, it's great. It's I love it. It's probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Uh uh well, what I what we have coming up though is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, though. Um it's uh he it's basically there's this guy walks out of this room and uh, this and I only noticed this the, the on this most recent viewing like any other viewing I've seen of it I didn't I never noticed before, but this like kind of very high class looking dude walks out of this building, and I only just noticed on this viewing that it says the perfect gentleman escort services. I was That's like, right. I, I was like, did they're just putting it out there? I didn't know that you could do that. <laughs> you could just yeah. advertise like that. The sixties were a wacky like, time. Yeah, so Rizzo kind of pickpockets him to like get a get his ne- that dude's client's information, um, and they go to the uh, like a hotel, and you can see Joe kind of going in to try and start hitting up some of the old ladies to to perhaps score a uh, score some score some business. And while he's doing that, Rizzo is waiting outside, and he, that's when he's having his his fantasies about Florida, and it's. It's just so funny because you see that, first of all, you see them frolicking on the beach, which is really hilarious. You see them like walking along the poolside and everyone's just waving outside like, hi, hi, Rico. Hi, Joe. You know, <laughs> and then there's a scene of him like just preparing a, a meal by the pool and everyone is uh, everyone's watching him. They clap at the end and uh, he's reading yeah. a bingo card. <laughs> it's just really, <laughs> it's a really funny sequence. Like it's such a. Um, uh, and I, I don't remember cause I watched some of the Criterion special features and I also watched the interview that you, that you, um, that you sent me. Um, and I can't remember which one of them they talk about it in, but he talks about, uh, Adam Hollander talks about how when they filmed these Florida sequences, like they, he really, over, he like overexposed the film to give it such a, a sharp contrast to, to the to the New York scenes because when they switch to the to the Florida fantasy it's like it's like literally night and day but it's 
uh, stylistically night and day. It's just like bright and it, it does look like oversaturated and overexposed a bit. Um, and it's it's a really it hits you kind of like a truck whenever you switch over to it. No, start noticing stuff like that, like on subsequent viewings, like you notice, I mean, it's literally a night and day sequence. You know, the fantasies are in the day with the realities at night. But then when you start getting to know, OK, you can tell like the film's a, a tad overexposed in the Florida sequence. And it's just like, but it's just that's a stylistic choice. That's that's a that's an on purpose choice that they made. And, and it works for the movie. It works for, you know, just to kind of give that contrast of the two. uh of the two settings so that that's just brilliant work there yeah it, it's um and as always joe fails again and he, he doesn't <laughs> manage to he doesn't manage to score and he gets kicked out of the hotel <laughs> and they have to run out uh, i don't know exactly what he does because like you just see him talking to like this lady um and then she looks like shocked or something and then like, he gets kicked out of the hotel i'm assuming maybe he basically blatantly set up front what he was doing and they didn't like yeah. it but um like it so, you know, you, you kind of pass the time because we kind of start more or less in the summer. And now you see the time has passed. It's like it's turning, you know, fall is turning into winter and uh, they're still in this apartment and their Rizzo's health is clearly getting worse. Uh, and he can barely, you know, he can barely like keep warm. Um, and uh, they have to start selling blood to like just to buy milk. It's yeah. a really depressing sequence. Yeah. And then... um. You know, he uh, when he comes back from donating blood, he has like the, the bag of groceries and he goes, I got twenty dollars or whatever he says, you know. And then, you know, uh, Ratso assumes like he's, you know, on 42nd Street trying to solicit somebody. He goes like, you know, where you've been 42nd Street. That's where you've been. <laughs> so there is an implication that like he's engaging like in, in, in homosexual sex for money, you know, when actually all he did was he had to sell his blood. <laughs> just to get buy milk, you know, and buy dentine gum or whatever. So, so yeah. yeah. Um, but then their luck starts to turn around a little bit. Um, they they're kind of sitting in a diner when they kind of get approached by. I, I'm not sure. They're basically these like kind of beatnik artist type, you know. Right. Uh, and. Uh, you know, it, it gives a very much like a very much of an Andy Warhol vibe. I'm not sure uh, exactly who they're supposed to be, but it's it really feels like Andy Warhol. Um, and they get invited to a party. Um, uh, well, they take his picture and then they get invited to like some like party at like a warehouse or something. Uh, and they uh, it, it's kind of a this is you get this really like nice scene, like because Rizzo is so sick. And before they go into the party, he's like fa almost falling all over himself. And, right. you know, Joe like kind of takes care of him. He like gives him a comb to like comb his hair. Um, and he like kind of and Rizzo kind of gives him like like puts his head on his chest. And, you know, as as uh, Joe kind of wipes him off and stuff. And he can you can tell like this is like affection that Rizzo has been been like desperately wanting. Yeah, he um. It's, it's it's funny like even though he's in that state he's he's still a smart aleck you know he tells uh he tells joe buck you know you want the word on that brother and sister act hansel's a f and gretel's got the hots for herself so who cares right like even even in his sickly state he still has enough i guess consciousness to kind of just still be a wise ass about everything so i, I just love that about the character too yeah um 
so they're at this party and they're just kind of walking around. You know, Rizzo tries to steal like salami from like this table, um, and uh, uh, you kind of meet some interesting characters, kind of like the you like hipsters and and uh, beatniks and hippies and all sorts of kind of you know crazy kooks and characters. Um, and there's a funny sequence where uh, Joe is past a, a joint. And he's thinking it's just like a regular cigarette and just starts puffing away at it and not really <laughs> just like really just fo- like smoking the whole thing down. And uh, uh, and uh, he gets really high and starts tripping out. Yeah. And then now we get the that trippy, uh, very Warhol sequence of him just kind of getting spaced out. I don't think he'd ever been high before Joe Buck. So, you know, this was a uh, very, uh, very intricate uh scene here i think yeah I, I think he also takes some he may have taken some pills at some point i don't remember but he's clearly backed out of his uppers mind. Um, i think because remember the guy was going around offering uppers or downers and i think he took the uppers so that added to it yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah the whole scene sequence is really um uh it's really fun uh and there's there's a lot of people that i think that um I think it's it's I don't I think it's kind of supposed to be making fun of that whole scene in the sixties, you know, um, but it's uh, it's a really fun vibe. So, a little bit here. This is not. It's only a couple sentences from the book, but so I, you were you were correct. This party was meant to be Warhol esque. In fact, there's a lot of like a lot of the extras there are from from Andy Warhol's factory, and one of the uh, actresses there, I forget who it is. It might be one of the one of the beatniks. That uh, invite Joe and uh, and Rizzo to the party. I think that's uh, Viva um, from uh, Andy. Uh, it's one of Andy Warhol's like superstars uh, from uh, from his factory of uh, Viva. So there's a little little paragraph here. So it says, in the meantime, there were offbeat offbeat alternatives. Andy Warhol doesn't appear in Midnight Cowboy, but he's inextricably tied to it. He was on the phone with his superstar Viva on June 3rd, 1968 getting the good news that she'd been cast in a small but important role in Midnight Cowboy when Valerie Solanas burst into his office and shot him. So he was on the phone talking about her getting that role when he got shot. So that's an wow. interesting little tidbit. It's kind of nuts. Yeah. Um, but anyway. But yeah, so... Like I said, this whole uh, this whole scene was pretty much based on the infamous Andy Warhol parties at the factory, and like I said, a lot of the extras there were actors from his, from from the factory. Yeah. Um. Uh, during this the sequence, you get uh, he meets uh, Shirley, who's played by um. Oh, hold on, uh, names escaping me. Uh, Brenda Vaccaro. Um. Yeah. Who's I don't know. She seems like a kind of a. I don't know how you would describe her, like an upper class, like she's a socialite, basically socialite. Yeah. Like yeah. a Paris Hilton type, maybe, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, she ba- he, he basically gets her to uh, pay twenty dollars to go hook up with her. So, like, he has a successful transaction uh, and he goes back to her apartment, um, but he can't quite rise to the occasion. Uh, he's just not he's not able to perform. 
Um, and they instead start playing um, a game called Scribbage, which I've, I've never heard of, but it seems kind of like a Scrabble type of game where right. you have these different letters um, and you you know try to make words out of them. Um, and throughout the whole film, they're they're um, they're in front of the uh, uh, the MO at what is it? mutual uh, something mutual in New York, New York. Mutual, mutual New York. New York. Uh, which is M-O-N-O-Y, and he thinks that's how you spell money, and that's how he <laughs> tries to spell it. And she basically kind of makes fun of him. She kind of makes fun of him and implies that he's gay, which kind of makes him angry and also wants to prove himself, and then he is able to complete the deed. Um, right. And after, uh, after you know, he, they're done, you can see that she's on the phone with, like, a friend of hers, and trying to set up something new. Um, and now it finally seems that, hey, business is starting to, to go. Business is starting to work now. Yeah, so it looks like finally his luck is starting to turn. And at this point in the film, like just watching it for the first time, you're happy for Joe because it's like, you know, he went through the shit and finally now, like it, his luck is, is starting to uh, actually go on the upswing. So it's like, okay, this is what you wanted to do, and it looks like you finally you made that one important contact, and now it's going to be you're just going to go up from now on. So you're happy for him, but then it all gets sidetracked. Yeah, because uh, whenever uh, Joe comes back, he's uh, Rizzo is not doing well. <laughs> Rizzo is coughing up a lung. He's 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 he looks like he's dying, which I mean he basically is. Uh, I believe he's got he's got pneumonia of some sort, I think. Um, and um, it, it kind of kind of puts a uh, he does not want to go to the doctor and he, he just wants to go on a bus to Florida where he thinks that uh, he thinks that he's going to be able to, you know. Recover just from the, the warmth and the, and the sun. Um, right. And, you know, so they need more money to do that. Um Joe seems to pick up uh, this old man at an arcade, uh, and this old man is clearly, um, he's a gay man, but he's a closeted gay man, but he's very conflicted about everything, and Joe really needs the money to 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 get it to Florida, and, um, well, he basically beats him and robs him. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very uncomfortable scene, because, like, we were talking about the dark side of, of Joe Buck earlier when he was uh, with when he was with Bob Balaban, but uh, now like desperate times call for desperate measures. It seems like he's in a worse position now than he was when we first saw this side of him, because at that time it was more about him surviving. Now, like, it's this person that he cares about deeply. His friend, you know, Rizzo, Ratso Rizzo, is pretty much dying, and he needs to get him to Florida. So it's now it. If this doesn't show like how much he cares and I would dare say loves Rizzo, you know, I don't think anything else does because now he's committing theft and committing these these horrible crimes. I mean, it's even implied that he murders this dude. I mean, we don't really. Yeah, see I was it gonna happen. say, do you think he do you think he kills him? I think he does. I think he does. Unfortunately, because it's like just to me, like. I feel like in this in the state in the state of mind that he was in, I feel like beating him wouldn't have been enough because he knew he was going to talk. So how are they going to get to Florida if, you know, they're sitting in jail? So I think he, he did kill him. Well, the reason I think that he did is because um, 
when he when they're finally on the bus, Rizzo looks at him and is like, did you kill him? You got blood on your jacket. And uh, Joe looks really scared and then goes, I don't want to talk about it. And I feel like that is the answer there. I think that that he did kill him. Right. Yeah. And the way like he was just so like uncomfortable about talking about it, like you just mentioned with Rizzo, that that's I think I don't know that's necessarily a dead giveaway, but that's a big, uh, big hint in that direction. Yeah, and, and and Rizzo is deteriorating fast on this trip. Like, I mean, he's drenched. Like, there's just sweat pouring out of him. And you just see Joe trying to, like, just keep blankets on him and trying to keep him comfortable. And, you know, at one point they um they stop in a town and he gets rid of his, his cowboy outfit and just buys kind of normal, regular clothes. And yeah, that, I, that's I, a big uh, symbolic scene there. He he gets rid of the cowboy outfit, like you yeah. Know. I, I I was gonna say I think it's a mixture of him of, of like symbolism, but also like practicality because he's got blood on his jacket. He probably wants to get rid of that evidence, right? Right. But uh, but uh, yeah, it's like he's no longer this naive, innocent cowboy. He's 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 just like he's almost like matured into a man, and now he's you know throwing away this persona that meant so much to him. Yeah, I mean, it just just goes to show again. This is again more evidence that you know this is like a relationship, or, or because it's one of those things where when you the, I mean, it could be a, any type of relationship. You know, when uh, you're in, you know, something that makes you happy, there's something that you, in a relationship you feel is fulfilling. Like you start to kind of change your ways because now, like you, you know, you're happier, you're you're more comfortable. So you know, Joe obviously is you know is now more comfortable. You know. Wearing just regular clothes because, like, you know, he's with his friends. He's with Rizzo, and they're going to, you know, make it to Florida. He's going to get better, and they're going to just, you know, live their lives and be happy. You know, he's even talking to him on the bus. Like, you know, I'm just going to get a regular job, you know, and just, you know, we'll just live our lives. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Rizzo does make it to Florida in, in a sense. He, he, the, he arrives there because um, they're driving through, like, what looks like a – uh, you know, some palm trees and things like that. And you see that uh, Joe is kind of trying to take care of him and again, wiping the sweat off his brow. And then he looks and uh, Rizzo just isn't stops responding to him. And that's when he realizes that, uh, that Rizzo has died. Um, the last thing he said is thanks, Joe. Um, and Rizzo's gone. And he, he stops the bus and the driver basically tells him, Hey, uh, just close his eyes because there's nothing we can do about it. We just got to keep going. Yeah. yeah, which is very, very uncomfortable. To, I'll, I'll be honest. Like, it's, it don't, it's not that the driver didn't care, but it's like, what are they going to do at this point? Like, let's not panic the rest of the other passengers. We just got to keep going. But it's like, it's still, it's, it's very messed up. And uh, the that's where the um, that's where the film ends with uh, Joe. Losing his only friend in the world, uh, on, on as he arrives in Miami after giving up, uh, potentially just giving up his his uh, dreams of being a hustler and being in the big city. Uh, his one friend has died, and he's kind of all alone in the world. Yeah, it, it's he's basically back to square one. That's yeah, that's it, the real that's tragedy of it. Yeah, it, it's um. It's a really sad ending. It's a super sad ending. Um, there is um, one thing, though, that uh, is somewhat amusing, is that uh, this scene uh, was parodied in an episode of Seinfeld. 
um, where I forget what happened, but basically Kramer is uh, is sick, and there him and Jerry are in the back of a bus, and then you just see Jerry kind of hug him and prop him up, just like uh, Joe does to to Rizzo in in this sequence. But um, it's just I immediately thought of that when I was watching the scene yeah. again. But uh, <laughs> it's a it's a very it's a very touching scene, a very sad scene, and um, it's you can just see the sadness in 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 Boyd's eyes as he like not only is he trying to mourn the loss of his friend, but he's realizing he's he's alone. He's got nobody. He's all alone again. Yep. And uh, we can kind of close that out with what uh, Jason Bailey wrote here. He goes, uh, "Florida is a dream of freedom, a mental escape from the city's crushing reality." And when the camera catches the reflection of Miami's condos on the windows of the bus superimposed over Rizzo's fallen visage in the closing scenes, we're reminded of the dream he never saw come true. But the alluring idea of escape would prove a durable one, a distant flight of fancy for the desperate characters of New York movies in the decade to come. So, you know, it's it's like you said, it's a really sad ending. You know, it's just it's that realization in, in John Voight. It's like this incredible facial acting here by John Voight. You know, Joe Buck's realization that, you know, not only is he now all alone again in the world, like he's back to square one. You know, he's now all by himself in a new city, a new state, you know, and it just he's starting from scratch again. So I and that's like I said, that's that's the real tragedy of it all and just the face that john voight makes to kind of just reflect that it's just it's amazing acting on his part and and what a way to end the movie yeah um so yeah an incredible film i really i appreciate it more with each viewing um i I, like like i said that when we started like the first time i saw it i just watched it to watch it really not paying like close attention to it and then with each subsequent viewing i was i i got I like you know i quote unquote got it each each time um and it's uh you know it's a pretty big legacy it's um it made a 44.8 million dollars at the box office which uh translates to about 336 million dollars in today's money and what's interesting is about that is when you think about blockbusters today you know, it's all based on like previous IP, previous intellectual property, whether it's Star Wars or comic book movies or, you know, uh, sequels to, you know, previous franchises. And we there we kind of have lost the days of, you know, kind of, quote unquote, normal movies just making this kind of money. You know, it, it's this was a huge hit and it was a movie that, you know, if it was made and released today would probably just be put in art house theaters and and make maybe a couple million dollars and that's it. But because of like uh it's you know popularity and because of the fact that it was nominated for all these awards and everything it became a massive hit and back then just like normal regular movies made huge money like that and now it's only and I love these kind of those big blockbuster kind of films but there's no there just doesn't seem to be a, a, an avenue for something like a midnight cowboy to to get the kind of release that or the kind of money that that those that you know the the Marvel and the Star Wars and whatever kind of movies make nowadays but this was a huge hit like 300 million dollars in today's money that's a huge hit and uh it's just interesting that we don't see that anymore Let's talk about a little bit of what Jason Bailey says. He says, audiences were enraptured. From opening day, lines stretched for blocks, and United Artists' slow rollout strategy of the film worked. 
Quote, popularity of the film hasn't been restricted to New York, Variety reported the following April, but has proven equally a hit in Dallas, Chicago, Detroit, Toronto, Frisco, Milwaukee, and Providence, rolling up all-time highs in those cities. It would gross $44.8 million in its initial theatrical run, $307 million when adjusted for inflation. That's like, I think you had mentioned that already earlier. That's, that's big. For a movie yeah. like that, that's awesome. Yeah, my the number I got was like something like three hundred thirty million, but whatever. It's it, it's still still a huge number, right? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a huge. It was a huge movie. Um, also, uh, lots of got a lot of award nominations, uh, specifically at the Academy Awards. Um, it was nominated uh, for uh, best picture, director, best actor for both Hoffman and John Voight. Uh, best Supporting Actress for Sylvia Miles, Best Screenplay, and Best Editing. It won Best Picture and won Best Director and also won Best Screenplay. Um, as far as uh, Best Actor goes, I'm trying to figure out who that would have been in 1969. John that they Wayne. Lost. Oh, was it John Wayne for what? The uh, True Grit? No, something else. I forget what it was, but it was something that's not very John Wayne. That I thought was was funny that he would win for. I forget what it was. Okay, well, um, yeah. So they so they lost out to John Wayne, but uh, yeah, major picture, major wins here. Um, if you want to watch the film, uh, you can watch it on most uh, digital platforms. It's not for it's not available for free on anything with a subscription like Netflix or, or anything like that. But you can buy it and rent it on, uh, you know, Apple TV, Amazon, Google, Vudu, all that stuff. Um, the cheapest price I found was that you can rent it on Apple TV for three ninety nine, um, and you can buy it at Microsoft for twelve ninety nine. However, we here are proponents of physical media, and uh, we, I'm sure, both of us would recommend the Criterion release of the film. Absolutely. And by the way. You were correct, Adolfo, was for True Grit. I'm sorry. I thought it was for something else. Oh, well. So so John Wayne did win for True Grit. All right. Well, I'm glad I was right. <laughs> um, is there any final thoughts you want to you wanna give on Midnight Cowboy? Um, not really. I think we pretty much said everything we needed to say. But I will just kind of reiterate that um, this was a film... I mean, I was pretty much enamored with the acting the first time I saw it. wasn't really looking at anything else. Now, the second time, especially seeing it with an audience in a theater, it really it kind of opened my eyes to just how amazing this film is in, in all aspects, not just the acting, the storytelling, the uh, directing, the cinematography, the music. Uh, everything about it is just uh, just a masterclass in filmmaking, and it's it's not really hard to see how it could have won best picture the first and to date only and will probably remain the only x-rated picture to win best picture but you know it's uh it's just a fascinating uh watch not just for the filmmaking techniques but just as a film in general it's a great story about like you know trying to make it in the big city loneliness um you know friendship and it's uh it's I would say it's a must watch. If you consider yourself any type of cinephile, you have to watch Midnight Cowboy. It's just one of those uh films that, you know, not only do they have iconic lines and just amazing performances, it's just one of those that you just you have to watch. You just have to watch this movie. 
Uh, absolutely, I could not agree more. Uh, a high recommend from both of us. Uh, so that'll do it for Midnight Cowboy. Uh, and it's now time to choose our next film. However, it being October, uh, we do like to watch uh, some spooky or scary movies in the month of October. Um, so I'm replacing the um, random movie generator with the random horror movie generator. So the only movies in here that we're going to be able to pick from are horror movies. Uh, so I'm going to run the horror, that that, mo- that generator right now, and we will see what we get. So stand by. Okay. And the random horror movie generator as for our next uh, uh, uh sorry, our next podcast has picked a true classic. I think a movie that we've both watched many times before and a movie that I'm sure we uh will have a lot to say about because it's a lot of fun. 1979, Ridley Scott's Alien. All right. That's when I saw an Alamo also uh, in 2019. So I have the audience experience to go with that as well. So that, that'll be a fun episode. For the record, the other movies that were in the uh, generator uh, that could have that could have won were The Thing, Rosemary's Baby, Bride of Frankenstein, Night of the Living Dead, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, mm-hmm. The Invisible Man, A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Birds, and the original Dracula. But uh, Alien is the one that won out in the end. All right. So uh, please uh, visit us at the EssentialFilmsPodcast.com. Uh, you can email us at EssentialFilmsPodcast at gmail.com. You can uh, like the Essential Films on Facebook or follow at Essential Films on Twitter. Uh, and if you can, please like, rate, and review us and subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform that you uh that you listen to us on. Um, I also do have a uh, YouTube channel. You can find that at youtube.com slash Adolfo J. Acosta. Uh, we also have another show called Force Perspective. Mark, uh, can you inform the people on what's going on over there? Sure. So uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at SportsGuy515. And you can also follow Force Perspective on Twitter at FP Movie Podcast. We also have a Facebook page. Just go to Facebook and type in uh, the Force Respective Movie Podcast. It'll come up. Just like us on Facebook. Um, that'll probably be the next thing that Adolfo and I record. Uh, we do have a lot of things to catch up on, especially uh, when it comes to uh, current movies. Like I mentioned earlier, I did have a four-movie marathon uh, over Labor Day. And plus today I did see uh, the new Venom movie as well as um, I caught the uh, HBO Max uh, movies Malignant and I saw – Many Saints of Newark. So if you're a Sopranos fan, I have some thoughts on that movie as well. So um, check that out. Probably in the next couple of weeks we'll have that up. Uh, and we'll probably keep it current from there as I kind of get, you know, little by little back into the movie theaters. Yeah, I have not yet seen uh, Venom or The Many Saints of Newark. Um, I have not heard overly positive things about either, though. Yeah. Uh, I'll save my thoughts. <laughs> it's, it's a little. I mean, I, I, I'll just say this. I liked Newark more than the other one. We'll, we'll just leave it at that. All right. All right. So that'll do it for us. Uh, please stay tuned for our next episode. That will be Alien. And uh, until then, uh, for Mark, this is Adolfo. And remember, always buy a physical media. Goodbye, everybody. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear what they're saying 
Only the echoes of my mind 